Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, the Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Uh, hey, Bern, I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Awesome. Let's, uh, let, let's, let's get into it. We're beginning our uh, first 2024 episode. This is a big election year. Uh, but uh, you have the uh, provocative claim that maybe we should just ignore all uh, politics stuff uh, until the election. Uh, or why don't you uh, unpack uh, or, or edit my characterization and unpack that claim? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm partly borrowing some of this from a uh, point that Nate Silver made recently, which was that um, everybody knows about Donald Trump. Everybody knows about Joe Biden. They are the by far the front runners for their respective parties' nominations. So. Um, there's just there is actually no new information that will come out between now and the election that will change anyone's mind in any meaningful way. Like there is this question of which side will energize their base more. And there's also, you know, the hypothetical possibility of undecided voters. But like I I cannot put myself in the shoes of someone who is honestly waffling between Trump and Biden and who is waiting for some new information, some new development that is going to cause them to make up their mind one way or another. Like, I'm sure this person exists, but um, there was a point um, that David Shore made a while ago that you think, you would think if you were a political person, you would think that moderates are halfway between Republicans and Democrats, but they're not. Moderates, on average, have this really insane set of policies that'll be like, I think, Anyone should be able to buy a gun and, you know, nobody should ever be able to get an abortion. But also, I think that we need to socialize all major industries and, you know, we need to withdraw our military bases from one place, but then we need to invade some other country or whatever. Like it's, it's just this completely wild mix of views. And so it's almost not, not quite worth understanding them. Um, the, the especially annoying thing there is that the, the low information moderates just have really random views based on whatever but um the high information moderates also have really really random views and um have really carefully thought them out so um you know if i when i describe that um that particular set of of views of like being very socially conservative on um gun control and abortion and then being very very economically liberal um you know, there's a there is a whole cohort of um integralists or other other like religious socialists basically who do more or less adhere to those views i'm you know most of them most of them are probably kind of um not not super anti gun control but like it's it can be entirely internally consistent to just have these really extreme views but they're also just not a meaningful part of the electorate um so so they also don't matter now the other 
So, um, so if you know that basically everyone knows everything you could conceivably want to know about Trump and Biden and that any new updates, really, they won't, even if they are actually news, they just don't change people's minds that much. Like you'll have a good explanation for why your person is fine when they did this thing and why the other person is awful when they did a similar thing, et cetera. So um, we won't get new information. And then the other problem is um, polling has been getting less and less accurate over time. And you have the meta accuracy question because every time, every time polls, polls get done and then we have the election results, we compare the results to the polls and we see that the polls were wrong. So we mentally adjust. And then the pollsters also adjust their sampling or they adjust how they weight different things. And, um, you don't necessarily know if you're doing the same adjustment that they are. And so now you're going to overshoot in twice as much in the wrong direction or what? So. You don't have any good data on polls, and the polls are not measuring anything especially interesting right now. And um, yeah, again, these these guys have had um, you know most most of a century to tell America who they are and what they're like and what they care about and what they believe in. Um, they full held office, so you don't even have to make it this hypothetical question of. What would Donald Trump do if he were entrusted with the presidency? Like, you know, you know what he would do. You know what he wouldn't do. Um, same thing with Joe Biden. Like, you know, everything you could conceivably want to know. It will be the best informed electorate in history because these guys are really, really old and they've been famous for my entire life. But yeah, nothing, nothing they say could possibly change anything. And so I think you should, um, you should mute on Twitter, like mute all references to either of the major contenders. Maybe pick a local race that could conceivably be interesting and where you and your friends would not be able to recite a comprehensive policy platform for both candidates just from memory. Um, yeah, pick something like that and have some fun with it. But yeah, for the national election, it is a coin toss. It will remain a coin toss. I'm sure that freaks a lot of people out. But um, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing nothing you can really do about it. So yeah, that's, that's my view on the election. Um, I, I just won't pay attention to it. I'll try not to think about it. I will almost certainly have nothing to say about it. I think in 2020, when the election happened, my my diff post that day was just on the history of betting on presidential elections, which used to be huge. It used to be that the the stock market would informally shut down on election day and the day before election day because everyone was just making bets on the outcome of the election. And that was basically like I guess if you were if you were trading, you were probably doing something like you are you are betting that Calvin Coolidge is going to pull it off, and then you're shorting some stocks just in case it doesn't happen because you know stocks go up when Republicans win elections. Um, so yeah, there it used to be this this wild fun thing, and then actually part of what killed political betting in the early 20th century, and part of it was just the moral concern of hey, everyone's gambling; they're gambling on this sacred um, you know this sacred process of choosing our leader and participating in democracy, etc. And the other problem was um, you didn't really have polls, so prediction markets, they weren't called that, but they were prediction markets. They were the best way to aggregate information. And now that, um, and so once there was widespread polling and once pollsters learned how to make the appropriate statistical adjustments, you just didn't need the odds. You could generally tell. And, you know, close elections, close elections do happen on, at a national level. They are, um, so like for the presidency, they're increasingly rare just about everywhere else, um, for, for various reasons. But, um, yeah, that's that was what I read about last time. I don't know what I'll do this time for for election day, but hopefully I, I will try to do something that has nothing to do with the election unless there is some inconceivably low probability event that makes the election actually interesting.
What's the underrated impact of what a Biden or Trump presidency would mean the, 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 uh, in terms of the second time? Uh, like, what, what do people not appreciate about what would happen or what wouldn't happen, depending on who wins? I think a lot, there's a lot more edge in the what wouldn't happen thing that, um, you know, they're, they're both, I guess, part of part of very different establishments. Trump has sort of created his own establishment, but it's it's full of people who were not really part of the Republican mainstream. Like, it's it's hard for him to get much cooperation from his party, like you can get these very vocal statements of loyalty from people who really do not like him and are just, you know, like they've, they've added the actuarial tables to their favorites bar in their browser because they just check every couple of days of like, what, what are the odds of this is actually going to happen? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think he can actually do very much. Um, and I think that part of, part of what happened, like part of what was actually genuinely interesting about the Trump presidency was that it revealed how much planning and organizational competence you need to actually enact significant change. And you can contrast that. So someone like, I would say Reagan tried to come in as this sort of revolutionary president. And actually, if you read things people wrote about Ronald Reagan in the 1970s and early 80s, it actually feels very Trumpy, that they felt like he was this complete intellectual lightweight. He was an entertainer, not a politician, and of course was this completely crazy right-winger who is going to provoke a nuclear war with the Soviets and just end all of humanity just because he thinks that it's going to make him look popular. Um, and it just I think at this point, there are still people who feel that way about Reagan, but for a lot of people, he's just generically a right wing, you know, a more like a right wing, but not beyond the pale former politician. And, um, but when with Reagan's agenda, a lot of it was cutting, well, somewhat cutting expenses, but realistically cutting taxes. And that was a little bit more straightforward to implement, but a lot of Trump stuff, the specific things had to happen. So for, for the U.S. to become less dependent on China, there needs to be a whole supply chain constructed elsewhere in the world. And Trump just did not have a lot of supply chain experts and people who have managed factories and people who have handled things where you have to stop importing goods from one country and import them from somewhere else, or we have to insource something you previously outsourced. Like, just didn't have a lot of those people in his circle. For Biden, um, he has in some ways been surprisingly successful at actually enacting an agenda, but it also sort of I think Biden coming into into the presidency in 2020 probably assumed he was a one-term president and then either for reasons of ego or for reasons of pragmatism or just through inertia um decided to decided to continue. I think he he's he's talked about this that there are there are other people who are qualified to be president within his party but um I think part of it is that because Biden has been able to enact a lot of policies that Democrats really care about there's no one who can really outflank him without just being annoying so you know Sanders will continue to be more annoying to people who are center left than to people on the right because people on the right just dismiss him as a crank who will never actually hold power um and think he's kind of funny and he kind of is um but then people in the center left like you can they can feel sanders dragging their party to the left and often doing so in by finding an issue where like half of the people you know 55 percent of the people within the party think this is a really good idea and then 
those people are 85% of the people in the country who think it's a good idea. So it ends up making the party less popular by, by pursuing these more, more edgy, um, economic policies. And that just, again, makes it, it makes it hard to get things done. So I, I feel like if Biden came in, Biden came in kind of operating as if he were going to be a one-term president, he turns out to be a two-term president, but there's not that much more to do. And, um, he's also, older and um i'm sure everyone everyone around him just isn't necessarily going to be frustrated because people operating in washington dc are always frustrated that they can't get stuff done so i think it's uh yeah it's it's going to be kind of uh sad and low energy regardless of the actual outcome that's a good segue into uh prediction markets in terms of betting on uh betting on who who who, who wins the presidency why are prediction markets yet so promising, yet it's been so challenging for prediction markets to to, to flourish? Why do you unpack this? So I think there are, there are a couple of pieces there. And one is like the, the exciting thing about prediction markets is that markets are a really, really good way to aggregate information. And there's been uh, a lot of writing about this by economists, and they, they point out some really striking things that when when the price of oil changes, for example, you don't have to know whether it's a supply issue or a demand issue. And if it's a demand issue, you don't have to know which country is consuming more oil. If it's a supply issue, you don't have to know which pipeline got blown up. Like all you have to know is that the price changed. And so something that did make economic sense before doesn't make economic sense now. So it, it is this great system for giving people signals that they can rationally adapt to in a way that makes the whole economy work better. But that that very fact that prices for widely traded commodities do just reflect arbitrary amounts of information is also part of what makes prediction markets so tricky because with with oil for example you have a lot of people who are trading oil because they are hedging some kind of business risk so airlines bet that oil goes up and oil companies bet that oil goes down you also have people who are speculating you have people who are hedging other positions like someone is investing in an oil stock because they think the ceo is really good and then they short oil because they think the ceo is he's good but not any luckier than anybody else so you want to hedge out that risk etc so there's just a lot of reasons that someone could trade oil but with a prediction market that's betting on a specific event like Will, you know, will Saudi Arabia have uh, suffer an attack that causes a one million barrel per day or more decline in oil? Um, the, you could trade that to hedge, but a really good reason to trade it is if you know that such an attack is happening and you want to profit from it. So you tend to have very well-informed traders who trade very aggressively. And that means that it's very hard to make a market in these prediction markets. Now, there will be a very, very liquid prediction, you know, the, the prediction markets that are directly tied to the U.S. presidency will be extremely liquid because of that same factor where no one knows what's going on, but everyone wants to bet on it. So you have lots of uh, lots of noise traders. And so someone who's making a market will will tend to do pretty well there. But for for other more obscure prediction markets, it's just hard to find someone who's willing to blanket take the other side. Um, there's this really funny prediction market on um, on Manifold, which is my my default prediction market site because it's it's fun, it's play money, but very accurate and um, has a good good culture. Um, they there was a, a prediction market that was called something like "Will nothing happen?" And I forget exactly how they define nothing. I think nothing was defined in terms of active participation on any prediction market on Manifold. And the bet was like, nothing nothing happens. Like room temperature, superconductors don't actually replicate. And 
um, you know, coups don't actually change very much and elections don't change very much and um, economies don't usually go into recessions and markets usually don't crash and all this stuff. So yeah, the bet was, the market was, will nothing happen? And um, I, I stopped following it, but I'm very confident that that over the time period referenced by the market, nothing happened. So that's, that is a, you know, a market that can't, that is kind of like a, the, the generic, like the market maker's bet in any market is nothing happens. It is that if you, if the next order that comes into a market is a buy, the order after that is probably going to be a sell, that it's probably not going to be like 20 buys in a row. It's usually this random series of coin flips. And if you're betting, if there's a random series of coin flips and you have a slight edge, then you can make money in a very straightforward way. And a lot of market making is like, do that and then find all the ways that you could have a series of unlucky coin flips and find a way to hedge all of those out or find a way to get out of the market when those are happening or otherwise find a way not to get run over. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Real quick, what's the easiest choice you can make? Taking the window instead of the middle seat, outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded, and when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time. Plus, Shopify magic is free for every Shopify seller. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash moment of Zen. Go to shopify.com slash moment of Zen now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash moment of Zen. So that's that's one piece. I think another piece, and I talked about this a little bit in a recent issue because um, at a at a manifold sponsor conference, um, Robin Hansen was talking about how there is this huge open problem of how do you predict who is going to be good at their job? And uh, companies invest a lot of resources in hiring people, but they don't invest a lot of resources in figuring out which people, which hires turned out to be good and who turned out to be really high signal in terms of making those hires. I think that happens a lot informally where you will have at some companies, you will have, say, one senior engineer where their whole job is ask harder and harder questions until the candidate cracks and just can't actually answer the question and then look at how they behave when they don't know the answer and know that they are they're out of their depth um so those those kinds of people do exist informally but i don't know of any cases where someone made an important contribution to what turned out to be a key hire and got a retroactive bonus when the person who's hiring they pushed through did really well. To the extent that that happens, it either happens because the person who made the hiring decision was a senior manager, they have a lot of stock options and they do well and the company does well, or just um, 
this person has a lot of social capital because they are the reason that so-and-so is at our company and not at some other company, but turning it into a formal system and actually evaluating it and looking at just what is, what is the actual signal when someone says, I like this candidate, I don't like this candidate. Um, that is a case where prediction markets could work well and yet they haven't been deployed. And Hansen did some kind of back of the envelope math and I did some back of the envelope math. And you know, we, we both argue that this is in theory a trillion dollar opportunity. Like you can, you can create a lot of value from slightly better allocations of human capital. And if you're creating a lot of value, you can probably capture some. And then, um, the, what happens is that if you have, if you have some idea and it does create a lot of value for the world, at least in theory, but it involves slightly to radically changing the way that people do a lot of things they already assume they're pretty good at, then it's very, very hard to get anyone to do it. And you just have a lot of interest groups who are slightly arrayed against this. Like a lot of people just want more flexibility in their hiring decisions. They don't want to have this constant internal scorecard or whatever, or they feel like they're already trying to hire the best people. So why are you making this an extra metric for them? And you also have just a lot of interest groups that want to, um, that want to control some part of the hiring process and want to, um, want to capture data on their own. Like if you look at the really valuable companies in the world, um, aside from Saudi Aramco, they're, they're all companies that are able to compound the amount of proprietary information they have faster than, than their, the, than the, um, economic entities they interface with can compound that information. So someone like Facebook or Google, they're just getting more and more data for their ad targeting model every every day and their advertisers are increasingly okay with outsourcing a lot of the targeting a lot of the details to the big platforms because the big platforms have more data but will not share that data directly but will sort of share the fruits of that data by targeting people better and if if you outsource a lot more of the analysis to those big ad platforms then they also have more data on what advertisers want so they they have this nice compounding engine where they're continuously getting a bigger data advantage with hiring, it's really hard to get a data advantage because you basically have two kinds of information. You have the public presentation. So someone talks about what they've done, uh, you know, where they've worked and what school they went to and they have a portfolio and maybe they have a blog or something. They have this public presentation of who they are. And that is always going to be exaggerated to some degree. People, you know, people emphasize things about themselves that they like and so, you know, if someone has the school, but not the GPA, that maybe that is like a, a Bayesian update on how well they did in school. Um, if they have a vague title at a comp, at an impressive company that tells you maybe they, they did something kind of vague. Um, if they say they worked at this elite company and on their LinkedIn, and the, the tenure is a range of years rather than years and months, then you know that they probably worked there for like three months and then got fired. Or at least you, you wonder if they worked there very briefly and got fired. So you have this public information that LinkedIn has done an amazing job of aggregating. And the private information is like all the stuff that they're leaving off the resume or omitting from their, their portfolio or all the other details that make things a little bit more complicated. And it's really hard to get anyone to reveal that information. And the information is valuable to the people who have it, but more valuable if other people don't have it. So it's, it's actually hard to get that flywheel of a compounding data advantage because everyone involved has this incentive to compound their own data flywheel a little bit faster. It's fascinating. I'm actually focused on that very problem in terms of uh, projects I'm working on. And my uh, approach is uh, a fewfold, basically to get that data as an exhaust from doing something else. 
like if, you know reporters and recruiters for example all day are talking to other people and getting information on those people in the context of either writing a story or or you know uh, hiring somebody and trying to reference somebody and they aggregate all this information uh, but they don't really do much with it uh, you know maybe they write the story or they you know determine whether or not to re recruit but that doesn't go in this database that's constantly getting bigger and thus you're, you're building this sort of um, you know compounding data set um, and my hope by starting those two companies, i.e. media company and recruiting company, I will build this data set that will be pretty valuable that I will then open up to the world in a, in a give to get model. So in order to, if you, if you want to reference somebody, you know, come give us a 30 minute call and uh, sorry, if you want to get a reference on someone, you could either pay for that data set or you could give, you know, references for free. So we'll, we'll see if that works, but I'm very interested in this, in this problem. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting to think about what, what different kinds of incentives would show up in that space? Because there's like part of the problem with information, like the economics of information in general is that for, for commodities, you define them based on what's interchangeable. Like it does not matter where in the world a barrel of oil came from. If it's the same grade, then it's roughly interchangeable with other barrels of oil, or at least, you know, that, like that's, that's true. <laughs> that is sufficiently true that people can trade oil futures. Um, it is probably not what someone running an oil refinery would say, and it's probably not what someone who drills for oil would say, but it's like, it's, it's approximately true for the purpose of saying, for the purpose of being able to say something like oil went up 1% yesterday. Like we can actually say that even though there are different grades of oil and they're all traded in different venues and some of them are traded over the counter. And so you can't, you can't truly say that a specific barrel's price change was whatever it was. Um, but then for information, it is, defined like literally if you try to come up with a rigorous theoretical de definition of information it is some stream of unique bits that has been compressed as much as it could be compressed without losing something important so all information is intrinsically heterogeneous and you can't actually have you know if you had a, have a bits futures market um, and the first question is which, which bits are which and if the bits can be traded around you want to trade your low value bits for somebody else's high value bits so, you know, if, um, I don't know, Elon Musk and I, like we swap Twitter accounts, you know, at one level, we've, we've exchanged some small set of bits. Like I sent him my password. He sent me his password. Now we're cross posting, but, um, you know, he can, he can link to a new Tesla release on, uh, on my Twitter account and, you know, get three clicks and, you know, uh, someone almost fills in the, the email form. And then I can tweet my most recent post from his account and, you know, get, get, uh, tens of thousands of dollars of annual recurring revenue. So like you end up with these asymmetries within a give to get model. But then, um, in some cases, those models have actually worked really well. So there, there are, um, financial institutions that will pool some data on things like transaction costs where everyone in some cohort, they're all doing trading and they're all trading similar things. And they want to know, am I, am I 10th percentile or 90th percentile at making this particular kind of trade? And they will sometimes exchange data like that. And there'll be, there are institutions that do reports on that. There are sometimes ad hoc reports where there's some really interesting circumstance and people just want to know like how, how crowded are these trades? How much, how much are we doing similar things to our competitors, et cetera? So there are, there are definitely cases where gift to get can, can work, but it does become really tricky. You have to figure out exactly what parameters you care about to, to really make it work. 
And then I think where, where it can work really well is when there's just so much value in aggregating the data, which I think is potentially the case here. If there's so much value in aggregating the data, then people are getting so much more out of it that they don't actually have to be that careful on exactly how much they're giving and how much they're getting. So something like, um, Tegas is a really interesting example of that, where they're, they're the expert network where you, um, so like the traditional expert network model is that the company finds people who know a lot about some industry. They arrange calls between those people and hedge funds or private equity firms or consultants or anyone who needs to understand the industry really fast. And then they charge a large markup on the call. And the Tegas model is charge basically a break-even markup on the call and then um, a fixed cost per seat for subscribers. And then everyone gets access to transcripts from all the calls. And so at one level, like you're, you are giving away a lot of information, although you made the call and then it got transcribed and it got posted to the side. So you have this brief information edge. Um, it also does mean leaking out some information about just which companies are getting interest from which people. So if you see some small company that suddenly has like, it used to have no Tika's transcripts and then one day it has like five of them, you know, someone's really interested in this and they're doing a lot of work on it. And maybe, maybe you should take a look too. Um, you don't know whether they're really positive or really negative, but you can usually read that through the the questions that they ask. And you also can look at the answers and see if, if they should be positive or negative. But um, that is that is a model where there is a lot of give to get, but there is also something where people are willing to pay a cost just to have access to this ocean of useful data. That is also It's also useful data that is a complement to something they're doing. And that, I think that's another piece in a lot of these information business models is that you have to figure out what part of someone's work are you commoditizing? And then what part are you enhancing? And if you commoditize something that is the main way that they add value, they will never want to be, they will never want to choose you as the software vendor. So you, you always, you know, I think, um, I think probably very, very few secretaries convinced their, convinced whoever they were secretary for that just using Outlook and using Calendly would be just a huge time saver. Because if that's like 20% of their day, then what do they do with the rest of the day? Now, if if someone is um, you know either nominally a secretary, but actually they're they're um, closer to a chief of staff, or if they are in fact a secretary, but their job title is chief of staff for for ego reasons, and they also do these other projects, then then maybe Calendly is actually a huge like a huge benefit to them, and means they could spend more time on the interesting stuff and less time on the commoditized stuff. But navigating that is is really hard because you know these products they're often they're sold to companies but they're bought by individuals and so you have to figure out why does this person think that making this decision is really really good for them personally and then as a second order concern is it also good for the company because if you do if you find some product where it's really good for someone at oracle to buy it and really bad if anyone really bad for oracle if anyone at oracle buys it then you probably have a product where if it works it slowly kills your customers and that just doesn't work yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the, this expert network space, this Tiga space, this this uh, idea of there's information in people's heads around companies, products, people that would inform investing decisions, enterprise, you know, purchasing decisions and hiring decisions. Uh, and and there's you know big uh, those are expensive, very expensive decisions. So if anyone uh, listening to this wants to work in those spaces, feel free to reach out to me because that's how I'm going to spend the next uh, or the first half of this year, really, really focused on different ways of, of getting that getting that data. Um, maybe, maybe to close the loop on on prediction markets, um, it, it, what's the path you, you you see for the space in terms of gaining mass adoption? Like, you know, imagine in a decade from now, you know, they're, they're mainstream or two decades from now, like what is what's what's going to have to happen? So 
There are a couple of views. Um, Hanson, Robin Hanson has actually been very open on this for a long time that because of the adverse selection problem where the best informed people will absolutely rip the faces off of market makers, you want to, like one response to that is just subsidize them. Just tell the market makers, like you are expected to lose a million dollars a year trading, I don't know, coup futures or invasion futures, but you, you do need to make a market. So this is sort of, um, the New York Stock Exchange sort of had this model. It's, it's unclear how much it was enforced, but they, they used to give people a monopoly on making a market in particular stocks, but also require them to maintain an orderly market. And that's, that's a very qualitative thing. And, um, it was sort of, I think it's the kind of thing where it was beyond the technical capabilities of the New York Stock Exchange circa 1950 to say what is an orderly market. But now I feel like there are a lot of data scientists, a lot of funds who could actually give you a pretty good definition for this is an orderly market, this is not, and probably look at things like the price impact of big trades or whatever. Um, so, but that was, that was definitely a case where there was a sort of subsidy that was coupled with some social responsibility to make the prices accurate. And that seemed to work for, for a while. It did eventually the New York Stock Exchange got, um, privatized and turned into a different model, but, um, they worked for a surprisingly long time. So I think that's, that's one model. One model is that, um, as gambling gets more legal, that there are more prediction markets where people are just betting to have fun. And if you have one cohort that's betting to have fun and then one cohort that is taking the other side of the bet purely to make money, you can actually have a pretty nice self-sustaining system. So, you know, there are, uh, like lots of, lots of cheap buffets and great affordable entertainment options in Las Vegas as a side effect of this model of there are some people who just, are totally fine with losing, they're, they're totally fine with losing, I don't know, $10, $20, $50 an hour, as long as the standard deviation on that loss is high enough that they are sometimes making money. They can be very happy with that. And then um, people who just go to Vegas to free ride on all of the amenities that are being subsidized to encourage that can also benefit. So that can, that can work pretty nicely. And I think that that is, that, that is maybe a more realistic model, although that's also a model where you have to actually navigate this really tricky thing where if if betting on prediction markets becomes just a normal all-American pastime and people just do it by default and then you sort of have a sense of who's doing it for fun and maybe who has a bit of a gambling problem and needs to needs to seriously think about whether or not they should be doing this at all, um, that can work. If you have, though, I think in I think in modern in a modern situation, it's just really hard to have something slowly become a social norm. What you tend to have is that something gets Either it never takes off or it gets adopted really, really rapidly. We speed run through all of the bad things about the initial implementation of it and it gets banned or becomes deeply unpopular. I guess crypto, crypto went through this cycle, right? Where I, if, um, if crypto had, had had the same, um, deployment, it had reached the same level of deployment that it's at now, but over a longer period with just fewer booms and fewer busts. I think that it would just be a more, more popular product and it would be a category where it was, um, not, not getting banned by as many places and not, not as much of a political punching bag. But, um, because of just the pace of the internet, once people start making money on something or once they start having some fun gambling on that thing, then, um, it tends to beget a lot more gambling. And once you have this, huge horde of low information traders who all have money and all want to bet it in a particular category, you tend to attract a lot of sharks who want to take advantage of them. Um, ideally, and this happened, like a lot of the sharks in crypto were just people who were really good at building 
high frequency trading systems that that took advantage of this new market and they provide a lot of liquidity and made it very cheap to trade crypto but you also had people who were taking advantage in other ways like running ponzi schemes or stealing customer deposits or whatever so i think that that kind of like it's it's hard to hard to imagine uh an adopt a pace of adoption that is slow enough that the kinks get worked out but is also also has enough momentum that it doesn't just peter out but i hope it happens yeah no, that's a uh... Well articulated. I, I want to segue to another topic you've you've written about recently, which is this idea of companies allocating capital outside the core competency, including home builders speculating in real estate or companies buying a fancy headquarters. Want you unpack that? Yeah, sure. So I um, I was actually looking into home builders because I was curious about the phenomenon of home builders buying down mortgages, and I'm still I'm still looking into that. I think it is it is interesting because we have this two tier real estate market right now because a lot of the like a lot of the currently owned houses are attached to a mortgage that is uh, at a very favorable rate, so it's very expensive to move. And then newly built houses they don't have a mortgage, so they do trade it closer to what the equilibrium price is. And um, home builders have been offering these sort of mortgage subsidies. Um, to their customers, and they've been a little reluctant to explain how big this is and how much they're doing it. But anyway, as, as I was reading about that, um, I did catch some interesting references to how these companies were thinking about their balance sheets. And it turns out that if you look at the pre-crisis period, part a big part of the home building model was just you know that this city is expanding, you you do this you know linear interpolation of here's how many feet. Houston expands out of the center of Houston every year. And then you calculate, well, right now this is just a ranch, but five years from now, this will be a suburb. And then maybe 15 years from now, this will actually be a very dense area and be very expensive and people will like to live there. Um, and so you, the old home building model was you buy the land that is going to be inhabited, but isn't inhabited yet. And then when you are building a house in that land, part of what you're doing is just exiting your speculative land purchase. And then that, that works really, really well when real estate is going up. They used to just mint money because they were buying farmland and selling suburb and there's a big price gap there. But, um, for not, not farmland, they were buying empty space and selling suburbs and that was very lucrative. But it also meant that if they under, if they overestimated demand or just the economy ran into a rough patch or if they ran into a financing issue and weren't able to reduce in their loans, they had a lot of this um, mostly worthless stuff on their balance sheet or I guess at least like stuff on their balance sheet whose value had been significantly impaired. It was hard to sell. And because of that, they didn't have any liquidity. So they couldn't just go into another market because to do that, you need enough money to buy a bunch of land and enough money to pay people to actually build the houses and so on. So um, when a lot of those home builders have done is they have slowly moved to a model where instead of buying land, they buy an option on the land and then they only exercise that option if they actually get a customer. And um, there is actually one company, NVR, which had been doing that for decades. I think they started doing that in the early 90s after going through bankruptcy. And um, they have massively outperformed the rest of the housing sector and have, have done well compared to the S&P 500, which it's hard for a cyclical industrial company to do, especially if, it, if it's in an industry that had the, the worst cyclical downturn probably since the Great Depression in the middle of that time series. But they, they did outperform. So um, a lot of other companies have, have been moving in that direction, and it tends to free up a lot of cash on their balance sheet. But it also means that now, now they are sort of 
on the other side of the table from people who their whole job is speculate in land and then construct very favorable ways to sell options on that land. So it's unclear if they have um, actually materially improved the quality of their business or if they have just traded one set of problems for another set of problems. But that did lead to this question of um, of the corporate headquarters. So as I was, as I was writing the, the piece on um, home builders and how they're slowly liquidating their land portfolios and it's giving them all this uh, additional cash flow, um, it occurred to me that there are a lot of cases where companies buy, they, they deploy their capital into things that are adjacent to their business and try to actually generate excess return rather than just hedging. So one example would be someone like um, Shell, where they have a big oil trading operation in addition to drilling for oil and natural gas. They're, they're also betting on prices. And of course, they have an edge. Like, Shell knows if there's a big oil discovery, as long as it's a Shell discovery, and Shell is talking to a lot of people throughout the supply chain and knows how demand is shaping up. It's already been part of their business, so they can make some extra money from turning those trades instead of slightly changing their capital expenditures decisions and slightly altering their strategy. Now they can just say, we think oil's cheap here. It's probably going to go up. We're going to buy a bunch of it, you know, a bunch of oil futures, and then sell them in a few weeks. So... um when I was thinking about different ways companies deploy resources, one that, that occurred to me was um, some of them buy a nice big building in a very expensive city. And I couldn't think of a good reason they should do that. Um, so companies will, um, like, you know, many companies lease their headquarters. Some companies have adopted this totally decentralized thing, like um, Coinbase, famously, when they filed their um, S1 to go public, they said they did not have an address. And they were distributed, decentralized companies. So no, no headquarters building at all. Um, but some companies, they spend, um, up to low single digit billions on a really, really nice headquarters. And they'll often have some rationalization for it. Like, um, you know, Apple has the, has their spaceship and Goldman. I think, I think their view was that the particular part of Manhattan that they were going to move their headquarters into, um, was, not quite as expensive as other, like not quite as as commercially lively as other places, but basically it would be if Goldman Sachs' global headquarters were there. Um, but when they're doing that, they are implicitly betting that in addition to being good at whatever their core business is, so in addition to making good smartphones or in addition to being good at trading various securities and doing investment banking, the Goldman's also really, really good at New York real estate. But there are a lot of people who spend all of their time in New York real estate and I would assume those people, like however good you are at Goldman, if you're really, really good at real estate, you should not be working at Goldman Sachs. You should be working at a company that just does real estate and you'll do even better. So I assume they're always on the wrong side of those trades. And um, looking through the history, there were a couple of cases I found where um, companies eventually liquidated their business and the headquarters was actually a material contributor to that. Um, Zynga doubled its money on its headquarters, for example. And um, at one point, the value of that headquarters was getting pretty close to their total market cap. Um, and then there's a micro cap company I invested in where the value of the headquarters was significantly more than the market cap because um, they bought an office building in Midtown in the 1970s and paid off a mortgage and then um, just owned owned a nice office building. It's actually across the street from George Soros's hedge fund. Um, so very, very expensive area. Um, not a great building, but the lot was nice. So um, they did eventually liquidate that building and it turned out okay. Um, so, and then when companies, when companies justify this, like one of their justifications is we actually have special needs and we want to design a headquarters that is perfect for those needs. And one of the cases that is somewhat well known on that is Next, where they 
um, they bought a really nice building and then they redesigned it and they got rid of elevators and they designed the whole internal layout so that people would constantly be having these serendipitous encounter encounters and would be exchanging ideas and so on. And I, I do think there's something to that, like that, that has non-zero value, but that building still exists. And today it's just an office and it has a couple of biotech companies and a software company in it. It's not, it's not like the building everyone has to be in. It's just a building that some biotech companies chose as the, the best option in that part of San Francisco for their office. So I think that that stuff is just really easy to overrate and that there's just always, especially like if you are, if you're running a company and you have this balance sheet with billions of dollars on it and you can turn say $2 billion of cash into a monument to your personal greatness that still shows up on the balance sheet as $2 billion. So you haven't actually destroyed any value in accounting terms. You've just changed which part of the balance sheet it's on. It went from cash and equivalents to property, plant, and equipment. Um, the temptation is just, just do it. But it does mean that every company ends up with this, uh, ends up with this slightly soggy balance sheet where there's a little bit of their capital that is deployed to something that is probably not going to get re- great returns. They probably bought at a bad point in the economic cycle just because that's when they have cash and that's when they can borrow money. And then if they sell it, it's probably, if they sell this office building, it's probably not a material contributor to their total returns. If it is a material contributor to, to their total returns, it's because they did something bad. And so um, if you have this opportunity to make a trade where you only look good for having made that trade, if everything else you did was significantly worse, then it's probably just not the thing to focus on. Like the thing to focus on is what would you actually be good at? Um, and I think there were, there were other, other arguments that I considered for why a company should buy headquarters, but a lot of them do come down to not paying close attention to the time value of money and not paying close attention to who in a transaction should probably have the information advantage. So yeah, the conclusion of that one was more companies should lease. I want to also segue to another piece that you, you wrote about, um, which is this idea of industry talent cycles. Uh, you know, unique uh, examples relates to uh, petroleum engineering majors, uh, concept after, after oil. Why don't you uh, unpack that, that broader idea? Yeah, so there's this wonderful um, chart that a Polish um, professor, so I'm blanking on the guy's name, but um, Lloyd Hines at um, Texas Tech tracks the tracks undergraduate enrollment in petroleum engineering degrees and graphs that against oil prices. And what you see is exactly what you'd expect if you think about this for a bit, which is since people people are making a, they're choosing a major in part based on compensation, um, or at least like the, the shift in major is going to be heavily driven by changes in compensation. And if you're choosing a major pretty early in your college career and then you're graduating later on, the, your choices are going to reflect what looked like a really good idea freshman or sophomore year. So what you will typically see is that about three years after oil prices peak, that's when there is a peak in the number of petroleum engineering graduates. So people in cyclical industries that require some kind of advanced training, they are disproportionately likely to graduate at a really bad time to be looking for their first job in that industry. And this is like, I guess this is like a common theme in a lot of industries. In fact, um, I think Mark Andreessen talked about this in um, an interview years ago. He said that when he first came to Silicon Valley, it was, I think, 1994. And he said that there was a recession and that he thought he had missed it. He thought that, that tech was this awesome thing that happened in the early 90s. And then he got to the epicenter of tech right after it ended. And that sucked. But since he liked making software, it was still tolerable. 
So um, you you do like every industry is going to have that. Just if you have um, anytime you have a supply response that happens on a lag relative to demand, you will have a cycle, and that cycle is going to be painful for everyone who participates. So this happens with airlines where. Um, peak airline capacity always happens when ticket prices start declining or when oil prices go way up. Um, it happens with cruise lines, same kind of thing. Um, you know, it happens with corporate mergers and acquisitions where the biggest mergers always happen right at the market peak. Um, and that's to some extent, that's just true by definition. So there's this, uh, viral tweet the other day pointing out that it's not, it's not high unemployment that causes recessions. It's actually low unemployment. And look, every time unemployment reaches a record low, um, there's, you know, every time unemployment reaches a low, there's a recession, but that's just true by definition. Like recessions cause unemployment to go up and you don't actually know when you're looking at the unemployment chart, like, is this the low or, you know, yeah, like you could have done that in, I don't know, 20, 2012, 2013, you could have been like, well, unemployment is now down to 6%. So we're due for a massive recession. So I'm going to short everything. Um, didn't really work that way. Um, so you just like, by definition, you have these cycles where there's going to be more supply right at the worst possible time. And that's just what makes the cycle so extreme. But what was notable about the oil thing was that relationship actually broke down. So oil prices went up a lot in 2022. Petroleum engineering measures did not go up at, at the pace that was expected because a lot of people who are um, in their late teens, early 20s, don't view the oil industry as having great long-term prospects and probably view it as being somewhat morally dubious. I think one one argument you can make is that if you are good at fracking, you are also very useful to a geothermal company and um, that probably many of these companies will slowly transition to more renewable kinds of energy. And um, But the other argument to make is like, oil is going to be around for a really, really long time. Even as vehicles electrify there's just a lot of other uses for oil and other hydrocarbons that we don't actually have ready substitutes for. And um, if you're modeling in a long-term decline, we're probably going to be using plastics for a really long time. Um, for all, I, I haven't actually looked at this in detail, but my guess is that a green energy transition is actually going to consume a lot of plastics. It's also going to be very energy intensive. Like a lot of um, a lot of renewables, they are um, they they do get a decent energy return on investment, but it is a return on investment. Like you have to actually use energy to create solar panels or to create um, wind power or even to build a nuclear power plant. So you're always putting energy in and then getting energy out later. And the energy you put in is probably going to come from oil, natural gas, and to a lesser extent coal. So um, it was it was interesting to see that, that that relationship is broken down and that there's probably going to be a talent shortage in the oil and gas industry. Now, for a lot of investors who look at industries and try to time cycles, um, the the classic wisdom is that no one can predict demand, but you can predict supply because it tends to get announced. Like you just, you track the press releases and when companies are opening up lots of copper mines, you know that copper supply is going up. If people are closing down lots of copper mines, you know copper supply is going down. You don't actually know what copper demand will look like over the next 12 months, but you don't have to know as long as you know that there are more mines shutting down than opening up and that the long-term trend is more consumption. But if you have a case where the supply of capital is pretty steady because these companies generate lots of cash flow, a lot of them paid down tons of debt um, when oil was doing well, um, if, the, if the real shortage is in talent instead of physical capital or financial capital, then you can actually have a case where in the cyclical upswing, the remaining petroleum engineers are just making bank. They're driving really, really nice cars probably Teslas, but they're driving really, really nice cars and they have really, really good lives and shareholders are not doing as well because 
the the talent can name its own price and the capital really can't. So I think that's that is something to to think about. Like anytime you look at a declining industry, as long as the decline is graceful enough um, that supply is shrinking slightly faster than demand, then it can be really, really profitable to be in a declining industry. But if the supply of the inputs you need is shrinking faster than the supply of the outputs that you produce, then you actually end up with in the worst of all worlds where your market is declining and then your pricing power, your your ability to capture value within that market is also declining. Let's talk about Russia and, and China, uh, particularly the fact that it's hard to build a economic block made entirely of uh, net exporters. Yeah, so this was, um, I forget, I, I think a few people have pointed this out um, recently, people who look at balance of trade type stuff that... There, there is this cohort of countries that don't want to be lost around by the U.S. and want to determine their own destiny, and, and that is that is what it is. But um, they are they are actually historically pretty tied into the U.S. system. So um, you you could have a country that is a net importer of goods and services as long as it's a really good place to send capital, like it's a reserve currency issuer or you know has a big military or something, some some other reason that it should that that's actually a steady equilibrium. Um, it often helps if those countries have access to a lot of raw materials. So this is a point that um, Tony Chuck made in the book Post-War, that historically, like pre, I guess 19th century and earlier, the way empires worked was that there was the home country where there are a lot of factories and the factories, the manufacturing is slowly pricing out raw materials extraction. And then they have their colonies. The colonies send them raw materials. The raw materials get processed by the factories and then exported to the rest of the world, including the colonies. But that was like the British model. That was, um, to, to some extent, the Dutch model, um, the German model, the French model, et cetera. It was like, we have these far-flung places that just send us iron or they send us trees or they send us rubber or whatever. And then we we manufacture high-quality branded goods and send those around the world. But in the 20th century, the two big empires were the American and the Soviet. And in both cases, the home country was actually better at exporting raw materials and ended up industrializing other places. And in both cases, there's some element of just comparative advantage and some element of deliberate decisions. So in the Soviet case, the Russians, like the Soviets knew that Russia was going to be communist for a long time, like they'd won their war, et cetera. So they had some level of legitimacy. They were doing a lot of propaganda. But for the satellite states, it was a little bit more dubious. Like some of them, they they became communists at a, after some semi-free election where there would, there would be like a left coalition and the communist party within that coalition would manage to get control of the police or military or something. And then next thing you know, it's now a communist country and there's only one one party allowed. Um, there's a little bit less to, less legitimacy there. And Central Europe it just had more of a history of manufacturing things than Russia did. So it made sense that the factories would be on the periphery and then the raw materials like Russia just had raw materials. And so they were able to export those. And then for the US, there was also some level of, you know, wanting, wanting Japan and Germany to be prosperous industrial democracies that, uh, that felt like they were tied with the US. And, um, and also having a system where the dollar is the reserve currency means a system where the dollar is expensive relative to other currencies. So U.S. exports are weaker. But yeah, there, there was this setup where you had two countries, you had empires where the country running the empire was running a trade deficit by design and running that deficit mostly in terms of higher value added goods and services rather than in terms of low value added stuff. And, um, it's hard to build a similar system like that today without some kind of demand sink, without some country that is 
really big and has a huge GDP and where people like to spend money on stuff and where either um, outside countries as a policy decision want that country to be consuming more than it creates or where investors in a free market think that it's actually safer to lend to that country despite their deficits than to lend somewhere else. And so when Russia and China, or yeah, Russia and China or China and Saudi Arabia develop closer economic ties, like yes, oil can be sold to China. China will certainly consume a lot of it, but there's just not that much stuff from China that Russia can buy or that Saudi Arabia can buy. And it's really not feasible for them to replace the U.S. as a source of demand. So they end up, um, it, to the extent that those countries are substitutes for being aligned with the U.S., it does make all of the countries involved much, much poorer. And that's that's kind of weird. Like, I I think uh, it is it is kind of annoying to me just as an American that America, one of America's most important roles in the world is to be this slightly lazy, gluttonous country that um, is willing to buy lots of stuff from the rest of the world because the rest of the world really needs treasury bonds. Um, and obviously, America is really, really good at some things. And in fact, the, the high value of the dollar because of its reserve currency status means that the U.S., to the extent that we have an export advantage, the comparative advantage is in very high value added stuff. So, of course, software, but also aircraft and military equipment and medical equipment and things like that. Um, that is kind of cool, but it is just weird that like for the for the whole global system to work, we must consume more than we create or there won't be enough dollars outside of the U.S. to make everybody happy. But that's as weird as that system is, it functions a whole lot better than a system where China can make anything for anybody and nobody wants to buy it because it's coming from China. That is a good uh, note to, 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 to wrap this podcast on. We're, we're just at the hour. Uh, Bern, it was fun uh, diving into a few different uh, topics you've written about recently and excited, uh, as always, for next time. Yes, absolutely. Very excited. And Happy New Year. Cheers to a great 2024 of, uh, of the diff and the riff. Yes, indeed. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 